Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm your host, Sheila Hamilton, and I'm here with our engineer, John, who always makes us sound great. Hey, John. Hello, Sheila. September is National Alcohol and Drug Recovery Month, and I've been waiting for so long to partner with someone on a series of conversations about our often very complicated relationship that we have with drugs and alcohol. That's why I'm so excited to share with you a series of dynamic conversations in partnership with Fora Health Treatment and Recovery. I got to know Fora Health years ago at a fundraising event when they were still known as DePaul Treatment Centers. Yeah. Fora Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon, that has been helping youth, adults, and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive, and affordable care for everyone, regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. Fora recently opened a new state-of-the-art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District, and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details. I'm Sheila Hamilton. This is Beyond Well. And if you're just joining us, I think you should probably toggle back and listen to episodes one and two on our series about addiction and recovery with Fora Health. We're talking today about understanding the recent epidemic and the reasons behind a quadrupling of drug overdoses since 1999. COVID impacted all of us in different ways, but its impact on people with substance abuse disorders is unequivocal. Dr. Amit Shah is a chief medical officer at CARE Oregon, and he was the medical director for the Multnomah County Health Department. He's worked both as a family practice physician and in public health capacities for so long that I wanted to talk to Dr. Shah about how we got here to such a serious place with so many people addicted and where we might be headed in the treatment of substance abuse disorders disorders. Hi, Dr. Shah. It's so very good to see you. Thanks. It's good to see you as well. I want to know a little bit about how you came to CARE Oregon. What path led you there? Well, it's an interesting path. I'm a family medicine doctor by training. You know, I spent most of my career learning and developing the skills to be pretty much a rural doc to be able to do everything soup to nuts that a physician would do in a a rural frontier community. Uh, I wound up finding my way to uh, Portland, Oregon and working for one of the largest safety net providers, you know, really serving a, a lot of folks in the eastern part of Portland. And through my years of the delivery service care, I, I, I began to intersect with Care Oregon, you know, in several different ways, mostly because of the Medicaid uh, patients that I would see and, and the services that Care Oregon would provide in relation to it, and saw that there was a way to be able to impact communities and populations in a different way than the great ways and and, and impact one can do for individual patient care. And so I was able to get on Care Oregon's board, which was a a really wonderful experience to be able to see how the payer side and the Medicaid system works. Mm -hmm. And then from there, Care Oregon had an opportunity as a medical director helping with some of the clinical informatics and data along with some network development. And from there, I had a series of progressive roles that led me to my current position at Care Oregon as the chief medical officer. Did you notice a huge difference in the type of care needs from your rural practice to what you were witnessing in a more urban setting? 
Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the time that I did do rural medicine, you know, I noticed there was a huge amount of significant differences. And in some ways, a lot of similarities, mm-hmm. you know, around, you know, the needs that populations have and, and the significant social determinant factors that resulted in, you know, really a lot of inequities. I think mm-hmm. in the urban environment, it was just a lot more acute. But the other part of the urban environment, I think that was really more significant and more pronounced was how the different systems um, really work with each other and collaborate, trying to improve the health of populations. Yeah. But quite frankly, having a lot of disconnection, poor coordination that left a member, a patient, a person, a community quite confused on what to do to manage their care through the system. Mm. And that was really apparent yeah. when it came to things like behavioral health and substance use disorder, which we know as a society already carries a stigma. Mm-hmm. And then trying to manage and navigate the care to, in our current system, I found was pretty prominent, especially in the urban settings. Yeah, your background in direct patient health and public policy is so cool. How would you say one informs the other? Well, you know, I think practicing for many years and sharing and understanding the stories of individual members and patients and and learning what the real, you know, sort of on the ground work, you know, really helps balance the sort of overarching strategies and principles and mission that large systems and entities they want to do, right? You know, mm-hmm. you, you want to make things better for individuals, but it's it's hard to have that gap between the two when you don't see both sides of that. And I think doing that individual care really helped um, me understand things on the health plan side around the interventions and things that would be the most effective mm-hmm. to bridge that gap. And then the health plan and the public policy side helped me really see a different lens of population view and quite frankly, what um, large systems and payers see as success right? and how you can bridge the two of those together to kind of get what you want. And, and, and that's been a very, very valuable experience for me. I loved what you said about just the bureaucracy and the miscommunication and difficulty people have in navigating the system. I'm interested in talking to you about what are the structural deficits that prohibit people from getting better mental health care? You know, there's several layers to that. One is, I think, societal's general stigmatizing of behavioral health conditions and substance use disorder and and really just, you know, an inability to address that. And then I think when we think about bureaucracy and, and the multiple systems that are in there, that when someone needs care, are you able to provide that care at the right time, the right place, and the services that really marry to what that person needs? Mm. And, you know, at a large system level, you know, you create a system that can kind of address things for the general population, but it doesn't take account to what individual needs. On the individual patient per patient member perspective, you're trying to manage something from an individual perspective, but it's not taking into account what the system is capable of doing or not. Right. So I I think through that, what winds up happening is you have so much, you know, poor coordination, um, you know, and really difficulty in managing what you need. You know, I I used to always call it when I was practicing the Friday four o'clock conundrum. (laughs) And it would be that I would have a very complex individual come in on Friday at 4 p.m., who at that moment told me I am ready to have my substance use treated. And I'm left with, what do I do? There's nowhere to send them, nowhere to go. How would I treat this person? It's the weekend. Yeah. And then when I tell them, Hey, I'll get back to you on Monday and Tuesday, guess what happened over the weekend? Yeah. 
they're gone. They're to another tent camp or somewhere. What what do you think we could actually change to reach people where they are, when they are most open to getting that kind of help? Well, I think there's two parts to it. I think one is we have to recognize that we have a fundamental workforce shortage issue, especially around the behavioral health and SUD that's only been exacerbated by things like COVID and environmental stressors like wildfires, extreme heat and so forth Mm -hmm. that has stressed our system to the highest degree. And so we have to be deliberate about creating the workforce pathway and supply. So that way we can provide the access that's needed to provide real-time access, like I'm talking about. The second part is we really have to think about how we embrace our communities and, and the places where our members and patients, populations, however you want to define it, are living. Mm-hmm. And that might be in, in places that are houseless situations, as well as different kinds of living environments. And we have to get into the community to be able to outreach to those individuals, to be able to get them the care they need to. And that's a very different approach than if you have a problem, please call this number. And, mm-hmm. and then you go through a phone tree and you know try to access the appointment, which we know has very low uptake for those people who maybe aren't engaged or in that stage of readiness, yeah. especially with substance use. Dr. Shaw, this question has always perplexed me, and we had a really good example of it in the tent community that cropped up at Laurelhurst Park. I think there were 80 people, and they were all offered temporary housing and services, and only half took that option. What are the reasons that people turn down wanting to have a house or have a shelter or to go into recovery? Why do they say no? You know, I think there's probably several reasons, but, you know, at least in my experience and, and what we've seen, you know, at Fora and at organization, as well as places like Care Oregon is, you know, I think there's a great mistrust of the system. I think that's one part, you know, a lack of clarity of, you know, if I do this, what, what will happen and will my independence be taken away? Yeah. I think there's a fear also that if I identify myself with these types of conditions, it will limit future opportunities or future, you know, situations and employment and things that I may necessarily seek. I think the biggest reason also is just there's a gross lack of the required services that are needed to be able to address underlying behavioral health issues that a lot, not all, but a lot of the folks in these types of situations have when they're untreated it makes it very difficult to necessarily make what we would consider to be, oh, a very easy, rational decision. Right. It's quite complex for somebody who's struggling with mental health issues, as well as, you know, mistrust issues mm-hmm. and a fear of losing that sort of relative independence. And, and I think it's difficult. And I think with substance use, it's all about readiness for treatment. Right. And if you're in a place where access to the substance you need, and quite frankly, the community that supports you, one would think, oh my God, what are you talking about? That community supports you? That is their community. Nobody Uh wants to be socially isolated. Right. And if you have a community of fellow users, it's hard to kind of break from that. We underestimate how difficult that is as humans. It's also fascinating to me in talking to many of the people who've finally gone through recovery and they reflect back on how their cultural status was built within that community of users. That actually was their reference point. That was their framework for their lives and they couldn't imagine dismantling it. Yeah, and and I think that that becomes part of like what we saw exacerbated through COVID. Uh, COVID, when we had appropriate public health standards of stay-at-home, quarantine, isolation, it only perpetuated and exacerbated social isolation. Yeah. And, you know, when you're socially isolated and you are in a community, even if that community maybe has negative outcomes for your health, 
it is still a community that all humans seek and want to be a part of. And when you have that social isolation, nobody wants to be in that place because that leads to increased anxiety, increased depression, and as we saw, a massive increase in misuse of substances. So let's talk about that. Overdoses have quadrupled since 1999. Are you tracking the reasons why? Yeah, and I think the reasons for that are multifactorial. You know, I think one as our society and different pressures of socioeconomic disparity and poverty as drivers, you know, really result in folks having that, you know, sort of increased uh, need for substance use. I think uh, opioids is a whole other topic, but I think when prescription opioids were readily available, that allowed some other substance uses to be more masked, if I could say that word. And as the restrictions of those opioids happened appropriately and needed to because of all the overdoses, you started seeing things like alcoholism and all of these other underlying issues that have always existed be further exacerbated, along with um, readily available street medication that are extremely potent, extremely dangerous, especially methamphetamine and some of the synthetic fentanyl that's out there right now. You know, I can't emphasize enough the social isolation, the depression, the anxiety, and underlying mental health parts of, of contributing to increased substance use. You're almost talking about market forces when, you know, like oxycodone was no longer available. The market forces for methamphetamine are suddenly all mm-hmm. all the rage. And then fentanyl seems like it's being laced into almost everything, which is very, very difficult to determine potency and how much you're getting, I understand. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of the nature. And I think when we think of substance use and mental health, we have to realize these are chronic conditions. Mm-hmm. They, they are no different than a cro- another chronic medical condition that we are used to, like diabetes, hypertension, and yeah. so forth. If that is a chronic condition and you know the substance is readily available, that is where the individual is going to gravitate towards. And those market pressures probably, I mean, I would hope would someday be gone, but I think realistically, that's just part of the way the world works and, and mm-hmm. how the substances are readily available. So I err towards you know, the substances are there, but what can we do around creating safe access, mm-hmm. trusted access, address things like underlying mental health and creating an environment of safety for individuals to really go on a path of recovery and have individuals and peers and support and the best science that we know around treating a disease. Yeah. Um, and I think that opportunity, if we put our energy and resource in it, I think that's going to give us a lot of success. I'm not trying to say that we don't want to address the illicit drug use market and so forth, but I'm trying to think of the areas where I feel like the health system can have the greatest effect. It feels to me like the United States is in a particular spiral on this issue. Is there any other country in the world that does a better job of supporting people with substance abuse disorders? You know, I I would probably have to do more research on that. In my experience and what I've read is I think some of the places that do it better um, really have two factors going for it. Mm -hmm. You know, one is the access of services are readily available and the stigma related to that is reduced. And that stigma that's related to it that's reduced is all related to being able to have community. Yeah. Uh, Once again, you know, if you have someone who is like you and understands what you have been through and is helping you not be alone and supporting you when you make that great decision to say, I'd like to be treated. It's a really powerful 
place to be in. And I think as certain societies become more individualistic and, and social isolation becomes more common, you know, it becomes harder for the individual to become motivated without that partner, that friend, that supporter to kind of move them along through a journey that's not going to be simple. Just because yeah. you make a decision to stop using doesn't <laughs> equal you're sober for life. That's exactly uh, right. Yeah. Wow. Our conversations about relapse and recovery are so fascinating in this series. I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on technology. I know there was a big shift to telehealth, good, bad. Do you see us continuing with this shift toward more devices and gadgets? Yeah, I think it, technology is a way for us to increase access in, in a way that is already happening, especially like when we think about Medicaid populations and other ones like that. There's always, I think, misinformation around folks with Medicaid or others um, having access to technology. I mean, technology is everywhere. Everyone has some yeah. version of the phone. Now, whether people have unlimited data or et cetera is a whole right. other story. But I think it's a platform that we could use that for some parts of the population is actually a lot safer and a lot more comfortable for them to do things virtually and to feel like they could access things driven by themselves, you know, on their own time and in their own place. And I think that the technology can do a lot of great things. I think about reminders and kudos and encouragement that the system could set up for you so that you get those kind of things. I'm often thinking back around the times when I was working full-time at a very traditional job where I had to work from nine to six and I wanted to see a therapist. I would have had to have driven across town using up half of my lunch hour. <laughs> You don't have time for a full 50 minute session. You're then stressed getting back because you're worried that you're late. There's all kinds of reasons that our way in which we set up the behavioral health system doesn't work for its clients. And, and no. I'm a privileged person with a car. Yeah. Now imagine how difficult it is for someone who's houseless. Yeah. And I think it's situations like that, which is where we can promote that access. And I think COVID, despite all of its awful things that it has done to all of us, has had some opportunities come out, especially around the virtual space, because we were forced to interact with um, individuals who were in difficult settings yeah. and figuring out ways to interact with them, including using technology and providing those with iPads and phones and other accessible um, devices so that they could interact with their healthcare system and or their health plan to be able to get the care they need. Yeah. We, we did a lot of that at Care Oregon. I, I want to talk with you about the statement that you made to me before we were starting to record, which was that you believe that one person with one-on-one -on -one compassion and care is actually the most important aspect of helping someone through an addiction. Could you share that example that you gave me? As I said, you know, I'm a family medicine doc um, by training, and I like to say family medicine specializes in relationship. And I think in humans, we underestimate the power of individual relationship. And it reminds me of a story of an individual who um, I was at my, this is back when we were all in the offices and I was in uh, visiting the food carts, you know, at lunch and gentleman came to me and he was, you know, wearing um, kind of an oversized suit and clean shaven and, and very polite and said, Dr. Shaw, I wanted to say hi to you. And I said, hello, and not knowing necessarily every detail of who this person was. And he said, I'm, I'm sure you don't recognize me. And I was like, no, I, I'm sure I do. And he was, he was like, no, I, I know you probably don't, but you may not remember me, but I used to see you at the homeless clinic downtown when you were seeing patients there. And 
I just wanted to let you know I was probably one of the most difficult Care Oregon members you ever had around substance use, going in and out of the jail and so forth. And I started remembering this individual and I was like, wow, what a transformation for this mm -hmm. person. And, and he proceeded to say at that moment, when I was at my lowest point and my family left me going in and out of the jail, you offered me medication assisted treatment, which at the time was a very novel thing to do. And you basically told me, I don't know what else to do. I'm going to try this new thing on you and I hope it works. And I'm like, and you, you gotta find a way to commit to doing this because I care about you mm. and I'm not going to give up on you. Mm. And he subsequently got the treatment and, and took it, but I left and joined Care Oregon and, and sort of lost that story trail. So we fast forward years later in front of the food carts and he finished the story for me. He said, I took this medication, like you said, and I got sober and I've been sober for over five years. Wow. He's like, my sobriety resulted in me getting a job. It resulted in me being able to reconnect with my kids, not necessarily my wife and family, to not be in the correction system. Mm -hmm. And here was a person who was getting lunch at the cards just like me. And it was all based on relationship, hope, and not giving up on someone who is struggling with a chronic disease, that we have a responsibility, not only as a physician, but as part of our community to help each other be successful. Because this individual is a true success, both individually, but also for our society and community. Um, and it was just really great to hear that experience. We forget those stories, but if we, if we hold on to those things, we realize there's a lot of good and a lot of hope that we yeah. can do to make a difference. Beautiful. I want you to just to talk with me briefly about the expansion of the Fora Health Campus and some of the things it's going to allow clients to be able to participate in. I feel like that new building and that new space represents hope. It represents healing. It represents an opportunity for people to walk into a brand new facility in one of the hardest and most difficult times one could have in their life, the lowest time you would have in there, and to have comfort, to not feel like it's some gross institutional um, you know, experience, um, but it is the state of the art, where guess what? When it looks like the state of the art, one feels like they're receiving the highest standard of care, the highest level of comfort and need that's there. And at that place and that new facility will be able to provide not only the best facilities, you know, probably in Portland, I mean, the newest, greatest setting and, and landscaping and opportunities for open space, but that setting will provide the environment for the greatest type of care to happen, both medical, peer, individual support, well-being sessions around, you know, meditation, yoga, music, being able to be in a green space to reflect, to partner with peers, and to be a community site, not only physically visible, but really representing where the community can come together and meet there and be in a place that represents healing and finally shows the stigma of substance use and behavioral health is real. It's a disease and it needs to be treated. And this facility sitting in our community and all the good it's doing shows all that there is hope and opportunity around healing. Yeah. It is going to be an amazing, amazing 
opening and it will be so great for our community in so many different ways, let alone the services and treatment it'll provide. Well, I can't wait to actually meet you in person one day when we are finally free of this horrid lingering pandemic. So thank you, Dr. Shaw. It's been such a delight to have you on this program and I appreciate your time very, very much. Thank you so much. I've appreciated this as well. It's great to be able to share the experiences I've had as well as this great opportunity that Fora Health is, is providing us with this facility. Bye-bye.